0: I am your host Vic Jurami, the editor and publisher of The Blunt Post. The Blunt Post with Vic is a program that covers national, regional, and local headline news, offers analysis and commentary, and I interview members of Congress, local elected officials, and other high-profile public figures. Let's get blunt. Let's get blunt. Let's get blunt. Let's get blunt. On today's Let's Get Blunt, I want to talk about the double standard of US foreign policy and how we choose which lives have value and others don't. A recent example of this has been happening for the last two years. And some of you know that in 2020, nations of Azerbaijan and Turkey orchestrated an invasion, a genocidal assault and ethnic cleansing against the independent Republic of Artsakh, massacred 5,000 plus Armenians in 44 days, and occupied about 80% of Artsakh, also known as nagarno karabakh which is its now outdated Soviet name. Of course, uh, most of the world didn't even know this happened because there was such deafening silence from um, international bodies, world powers, organizations, NGOs, etc. And of course, it happened under... Uh, President Trump's watch, who is pals with the president of Turkey, Erdogan. He has two towers in Istanbul. And at the time he was building another one in Baku. So he certainly wasn't going to do anything about it. And uh, these things don't happen without the knowledge of powerful nations like the U.S. And so, you know, not much was done. And, uh, you know, except for sort of toxic, both side statements by, you know, foreign governments and uh, Secretary Pompeo at the time of, you know, saying uh, both sides should come back to the table and negotiate and this and that, which was just garbage. Because when Ukraine was invaded by Russia within minutes, within hours, the language was very different. So the language was that here the aggressor is the, is Russia and the victim is Ukraine. Rightfully so. And I'm glad that the world reacted the way they did to Ukraine. And, of course, the U.S. has sent billions of aid to Ukraine, different types of aid. But when it comes to uh, Artsakh and Armenia, I guess they're not West enough. Uh, Recently, a couple of weeks ago, Azerbaijan went further and invaded parts of sovereign Armenia. And they are now occupying parts of Armenia. And yet you're still getting... The same sort of rhetoric. Uh, it's a little bit less, uh, but it's definitely nothing uh, close to the reaction we had with Ukraine. Of course, uh, Speaker Nancy Pelosi went to Armenia to show her solidarity. Secretary Blinken has supposedly called President of Azerbaijan Aliyev and said that uh, you know he should uh, stop his military actions and etc. But how is it that? that's all we do for one nation and yet with ukraine the entire world was about to go into world war three now of course i understand ukraine is a much larger nation it has a great amount of natural resources and here the enemy is putin and russia but When our politicians, whether it's uh, President Biden or Secretary uh, Blinken and such, when they talk about uh, human rights and democracy, uh, they don't, Talk about that, you know, they don't say that there's a caveat that it's contingent on your natural resources. It's just been really it's really been disgusting. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Watching President Biden's deafening silence on this and Secretary Blinken's really toxic both sides and just a bunch of rhetoric and sound bites and not much else. Uh, And I am a progressive. I did vote for President Biden, um, but I'm really, I'm disgusted. I'm disgusted by the way this administration is handling it. Of course, I have to give credit to uh, many members of Congress who are trying to bring attention to Azerbaijan and Turkey's genocidal campaign against the Armenians, uh, including Senator Bob Menendez, Congressman Adam Schiff, Congressman Frank Plone, Congresswoman Jackie Speier, Congressman Brad Sherman and many more, uh, but we do have to hold our elected um, elected officials really accountable for uh, sort of playing sort of favoritism based on uh, a, you know what we can get out of a nation and, and their natural resources, and also, of course, in this case, uh, what we can get out of the the aggressor, you know, Azerbaijan. Having uh, lots of oil and gas, um, it's been a major factor in keeping a lot of world powers quiet because they're dependent, or at least they they want to be dependent on Azerbaijan oil. It's part of the reason why the European Union, headed by uh, Charles Michel, has been you know just disgustingly placating to Aliyev and his regime. Uh, there's been you know almost no sound coming out of the United Nations. Uh, Council of Europe, OSCE, uh, CSTO, or many other organizations, Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, when innocent Armenians are being slaughtered. Uh, Last week, an Armenian woman soldier, a mother of three, was captured by Azerbaijanis. She was raped, she was mutilated, Uh, she was murdered, of course, and they, they put rocks in her eye sockets they put her finger in her mouth and took pictures and this was all on video and they released it. Um they're, of course they're doing that as part of a psychological warfare and such. And because Azerbaijan has sort of unlimited oil and they can buy weapons from multiple nations, they have a lot more power than a small nation like Armenia with a population just under three million. So I'm, you know, I'm gonna be blunt and I'm going to call out the party that I voted for, the party that I thought was better. In some ways, they are. uh, And in this case, they're not. At least the administration is not. It's happening in real time. I mean, as I'm talking, the Armenians are being killed. And uh, most of the world hasn't even heard about it. It's not covered in media. And media is you know, partly to blame for this, too. So there it is. I'm getting blunt about the double standard of U.S. foreign policy. Let's get blunt. You're listening to Pacifica Radio's KPFK, 90.7 FM Los Angeles, 98.7 Santa Barbara, 93.7 San Diego County, and globally at kpfk.org. Councilmember Paul Koretz has represented Los Angeles' 5th District since 2009. Born in the San Fernando Valley, Councilmember Koretz helped lead the effort to incorporate the new city of West Hollywood in 1984. In 2000, he was elected to the California State Assembly, representing the 42nd Assembly District that included much of City of LA's 5th District. While serving in the State Assembly, he authored over 70 bills to protect workers and their families, fought for LGBTQ equality, and the recognition of the Armenian Genocide. Councilmember Koretz is running to be the next Los Angeles City Controller, which will be decided in 2022. His endorsements are way too many to list, but a few include the Los Angeles Mayor, Eric Garcetti, Unite Your Local 11 Hospitality Workers Union, AIDS PAC, Councilmember Kevin DeLeon, and the iconic labor leader and human rights activist, Dolores Huerta. Councilmember, thank you for um, speaking with me, taking part in this interview during a very pivotal time for, I want to say Los Angeles, but uh, I think it seems like the world is a little bit on edge right now. You have been a council member in Los Angeles for over 12 years uh, of a very pivotal uh, district, which has even expanded uh, recently. In this sort of few months ago, we thought it was going to be a transitioning or post-pandemic, but it's still a pandemic era for Los Angeles, one of the largest economies in the world where so much is changing. What is your perspective in general about uh, what is happening in Los Angeles?
1: Well, it's, it's been a tough time. Obviously, uh, COVID has been a, a difficult crisis and we haven't been able to get a high enough percentage of uh, the population vaccinated quickly enough to to uh, reach any kind of herd immunity and and eliminate it so it seems like our ongoing push has to be to get everybody vaccinated eventually given the booster shot um, which seems to provide especially uh, high protection for the current variant we have to uh, Push to increase the usage of masks where, where possible. And I was the one that first pushed for that in Los Angeles and convinced the mayor and introduced a motion on my own to, to make that happen. And I think that helped control the pandemic to some degree in LA uh, before we actually had the vaccination as, as a tool. Um, so that's been a, a tough issue, uh, which, which I've tried hard to lead on. I also did a a piece of legislation requiring employers to give half a day off to get the shot and recover and an additional day to recover after that if necessary. So the concerns about the symptoms and being sick for a day um, didn't scare anyone off that couldn't afford to to lose that time. Um, I've been very involved for years in trying to fight homelessness. I helped to uh, create the the PATH program, which is a well known nonprofit that now houses about 2,500 people, about 20 years ago, um, before the problem grew as exponentially as it has. And my focus has been on something that's been different than most of the council and most elected officials, which is what can we do that doesn't involve building more housing and doesn't involve leasing more housing but is, is, is more preventative in a way. Mm-hmm. So uh, I've been pushing for years and we finally adequately funded this year an eviction protection program so that if people are unjustly served with an eviction notice, if they don't have representation, they'll usually still get evicted. But if they have an attorney, uh, if they have a, a, a real case and it's not a, a justifiable eviction, they'll usually win. So it's a lot cheaper to keep people from being kicked out of their homes than to build a $700,000 HHH unit and provide services. Um, And it's also more humane, and it's quicker. Um, And preferable. And preferable. So that's kind of been my angle. We also required a few units of affordable housing and a lot of large luxury buildings in the city. But then we didn't track them. So landlords might rent to somebody that needs it. They might rent to their nephew that doesn't show an income because they're going to college and they don't have a job. Um, They might just rent market rate because nobody's watching. So I pushed for years to get a database set up so we could track it which we were originally told was impossible. But of course it's not, and we now have such a database. And uh, we're also trying to put together a list of people that actually need affordable housing or they could wind up on the street. So again, it's it's a more preventative approach. And you know, I have several other ideas that I've been pushing for, and hopefully we'll focus on some of them because they all are quicker and cheaper and more humane. Um, and
0: I think that should be the approach of the city. Because it's, you know, it's such a daunting task. Um, you know, California has 50% of the the unhoused population. And even if, if magically we have the budget to house everyone, there will be others that will come. So it's really a national problem and it's a nat- I should say, national challenge to fix it and I know that Sometimes we, we want our council members, or assembly members, or state senators to just sort of, you know, snap and everything is, is taken care of, but it's, it is a very daunting task. I was going to ask you what some of the key challenges are in the city as we are, but I think you covered a lot of them uh, because you've been working on them for a long time, you know, including the, uh, the homelessness and uh, and eviction and all of that. So I'm going to transition to sort of your next your next step in public service. You're a candidate to become um, a city controller for Los Angeles. Yes. And um, I think some people don't know what a city controller does. So before we get into specifics, if you would just sort of give us a little bit of a an explanation of what a city controller does.
1: Well, I think the key things. There are other things that the department does, but the Elected city controller, uh, I think really focuses in a few areas I think the primary one is finding efficiencies and rooting out waste and finding ways to save the city money So that we can we can spend those on programs that we actually need Rather than things that are, are steps that don't do anything for anyone and an example of that uh, years ago uh, Wendy Gruhl and I pushed through a change in in how bills were paid because the city usually paid its bills early because it used to pay them late and get uh, assessed penalties so it started paying them early and they lost money on the float of money so we decided that uh, we would pay bills exactly on time I mean we're in the computer age we can do that And just making that minor change I think probably saves, I think we thought a million dollars, a little over a million dollars. Now, in a big city budget, a million dollars isn't much, but you save a few million here and a few million there and it suddenly becomes real money, as they say. And some of the ideas out there can save a lot more than a million dollars. But that's the kind of thing, It, it, it doesn't do anyone any good to be paying the bills at the wrong time Nobody's losing anything, um, except we found a way to save money. So there there are dozens and dozens of ideas like that. And so that's one piece. The controller does policy audits. So the controller can look at departments and how well they're functioning and which functions are, are being performed better, which are problematic, and they might make some suggestions, and also look at programs. So we probably have 20 different homeless programs. So I don't think anyone's really taken a look and compared them and said, all right, this is working, this is getting this many people into into housing, Uh, this is helping us build more housing, this one is not getting us anywhere. So that's the type of thing that uh, uh, the controller does. And the third important function which has really been advanced dramatically by our current controller, Ron Galperin, is making information accessible. A lot of our financial information is accessible on the controller's dashboard, and you can configure it and get different, different kinds of information and uh, create graphs and different things from it. So doing that and, and advancing that is also an important uh, Function, I would say I have a little bit of a vision for that but I think the first two are the areas that I bring more to it and The reason I decided to run is really when I first got elected in 2009 we were in a huge recession and That we were talking about laying off four to five thousand people and I said I'm a new council member, but I'm not going to show up and let all these people be laid off right So I I really did lead the effort to fight the layoffs. But part of the way we did it was trying to find efficiencies so we would have more money that we weren't wasting and we could apply to city services and not have to lay people off. And some of those were implemented when we needed to. Some of them turned out to take years longer. So long past the crisis, um, I was pretty stubborn and I kept working on them. And some of them are even being implemented right now, 12 and a half years later. It's, it's sort of a natural progression. I've done it. It's almost been a hobby of mine on council. How do we push these ideas through? How do we talk our colleagues into it um, and make them see the, the value and make department heads see the value? and it's something I'd like to
0: continue doing and would be my main focus as uh, as controller. This is the Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jarami, and you are listening to my interview with Council Member Paul Koretz, who is also a candidate for LA City Controller, which will be decided in 2022. You answered what was going to be my next question, which is, you know, you've been a beloved council member. Why are you putting yourself in this super high pressure? I mean, you already have a lot of high pressure on you as a council member, but going up to the next level, but then you answered that and, and that you, uh, you've you already been doing this and you've had all these ideas and some of them you've passed. and, uh, uh, you and It's can, sort of
1: the less emotional, less visible side of things. Right. And I'm not someone that really likes being visible and likes the glory and right. likes to go, and go to a lot of ceremonial events. This is a job where you really can just dig in and do the work. Right. And it's not a sexy job. You don't see other elected officials uh, you know, trying to elbow me out of the way because right. it's it's not very glamorous, but it's something that can do a, a tremendous amount of good for the city. Yeah,
0: which is considering all the changes, we definitely need all-hands kind of an approach to uh, Los Angeles's challenges. There's also the mayoral race and all of that. Uh, if, uh, if people want to learn more about your, your city controller race and how to get information and maybe contribute, et cetera, where they can where can they go?
1: Well, we have a, a website. It's not fully developed yet, but it's, it's got some things on it, um, and it's caretsforla.com. 4 lacom Coretz4la.com. Yes, and that for is spelled out. That's sometimes confusing. So
0: Koretsforla.com. Got you. Okay, gotcha. okay. Koretsforla.com. Okay, thank yeah. you for that. So I want to segue to your background. You are a, a big educator and, and a, an advocate for um, Holocaust studies, Armenian Genocide studies. You have been a great friend and a supporter of the Armenian community some of whom are in your district. Uh, and I, I'm sure that you've sort of gone through the, the last few years' highs and the lows that has to do with the Armenian-American community. You know, Los Angeles had recognized the Armenian genocide a long time ago, as had state of California. But, of course, earlier this year, um, uh, President Biden did. Um, but, of Which course...
1: Is, uh- Exciting and kind of a surprise after all these years. That was great.
0: Yes, one hundred and six years, uh, but of course, last year we we witnessed this with this uh, genocidal assault on on the Armenians of Artsakh, as it's known to some people in the Garden of by nations of Azerbaijan and Turkey, uh, and we. It's almost like having PTSD. We're back to sort of re sort of re witnessing what our great-grandparents witness perhaps what is your general perspective on what happened and uh, what do you think about it
1: well it it was just inexcusable and unnecessary for this whole conflict to have happened but I'm thoroughly disgusted about the way that it happened it's almost inconceivable to me that in in the modern era that we would have this kind of warfare where people were cutting the ears off people as trophies and skinning them alive and doing things that that you just wouldn't believe could be possible and uh yeah it's it's hard and it's it's hard being jewish and watching that because i mean we we all say never again but it doesn't mean just never again for the jews we don't want to see a genocide happen and especially An attempt to repeat a genocide that was so difficult to get recognized and has never been recognized by the perpetrators, uh, and now are really taking that same step in Artsakh. I mean, it's—I talked to Paul Krikorian about it, and it's so painful for him, but especially because he'd been to Artsakh, which I had never been to, and uh, he saw. A park that he had seen uh, before this conflict and you know, so much money and effort and community pride and now it was just taken over it's been an issue that I've been focused on in the Armenian genocide for many years since I went to college and uh, first inadvertently took a class in Turkish history from someone who turned out to be a genocide denier and that outraged me once I understood uh, what was happening, and I've been an advocate uh, ever since. And I did legislation uh, about 20 years ago in in the state assembly to create uh, Holocaust and Armenian Genocide and other genocide uh, teacher training. I think at the time we were in the middle of a fiscal crisis, so there wasn't money put into it, and, and uh, I don't think it had the impact that that i wanted except i got no one not a single person complained about teacher training for the holocaust but i got tens of thousands of calls and emails from turks saying how dare you teach this this genocide never happened i couldn't believe it i even had uh, an email from a friend of my father's and he had he died uh, over 40 years ago, so that was a long time ago. And he said, your father would have never done this. And, uh, you know, he must be turning over in his grave. And I don't remember what I sent back to him, but essentially it would be, you son of a bitch. My father would be so proud. and You can't fool me. Was, was your dad's friend Turkish? I suspect he was, but I didn't know people as, you know, their nationalities. I just knew them as, as people he yeah. worked
0: with and become friends with. It's unfortunate that, uh, it's, uh, that it's still a necessity to educate the world about genocides. I mean, Armenian genocide is not the only one. Uh, 20th century, after Armenians, it was the Holocaust, and after Holocaust was Rwanda and Chile and, and Cambodia and Darfur and... Which Not which enough. I I did a, I did legislation at
1: the state level to uh, divest from from the Sudan while while all all of the genocide in Darfur was yeah. happening. Um, the the thing that makes me the most distressed is I feel a kinship with the Armenian community, especially as a as a Jew, and the fact that we went through the two great Holocausts in world history, and. It's difficult because I don't think most Jews know the history of the Armenian relationship with Turkey and with Azerbaijan. And I think Israel sold Azerbaijan some, uh, some weapons not for this conflict specifically, but I think there's always been a good relationship because Azerbaijan has treated its Jewish population uh, more kindly than any other Muslim country. So they view that as a positive, but they don't see the connection that they're also, you know, supporting the Turks and engaging in genocidal activities on their own.
0: Your support has been very meaningful.
1: And that's probably the area where I've perhaps been the most impactful because I've communicated with Israel and they know I'm a, you know, very out there supporter of Israel. Right. And, and. It, it was heard, so I know they paid attention now whether whether it changed anything or not, I don't know, but that's important, but they need to know that there are jews in in American government places that support you
0: know support the Armenian people and support yeah, the- many This is the blunt post with Vic on kpfk ninety point seven fm I am your host Vic Jarami, and you are listening to my interview with council member. Paul Karatz, who is also a candidate for LA City Controller, which will be decided in 2022. There, there are so many um, Jewish people that have, um, from uh, Ambassador Morgenthau, the first major advocate and activist for the Armenian community trying to stop genocide, to Franz Werfel, who, who wrote the famous book, 40 Days of Musadar, about genocide, who was a, a Dutch Jew to Raphael Lemkin, who was a Polish Jew who coined the term genocide, uh, Mm -hmm. partly uh, due to the Armenian Genocide, to um, Steven Spielberg, uh, including the Armenian Genocide as part of the Shoah Foundation, Mm -hmm. and on and on and on. So, uh, unfortunately, I think it was easier with the Jewish
1: population because the Holocaust survivors were younger at the time, so there were more of them, it was probably harder to capture uh, uh, the actual stories from the actual people that lived oh, through it. Sure. But they were sure. able to do that to some
0: degree, which is great. I, I actually wrote a, uh, an editorial a few years ago. I titled it Jews colon Armenians, Other Cousins. And uh, I talked about how uh, the Greeks are always considered cousins to the Armenians because of our shared trauma with the Turkish. And the French are considered cousins because of France's unwavering support for the Armenians and how they came to our rescue during the genocide at Musadakh. And then I go into uh, the kinship of of the Jewish community worldwide with with the Armenians. I actually went to the, the Holocaust Memorial in Armenia when I was there in May. I went there a couple of times this year. So yes, your your support uh, is is super important and uh, and for Artsakh too, is people's right to self determination. I'm glad that uh, you know Los Angeles has recognized the independent Republic of Artsakh. Uh, I don't honestly know how who and how that was voted. I mean, I know it was about seven or eight years ago, but I suspect that from what you've said, you recognize Artsakh, you you support Artsakh, and and the people.
1: And I still haven't
0: been there, so I, I know there's
1: a, a trip planned at some point, uh, and uh, when that
0: happens, I'll, I'll join it. I think that would be a special thing. I, I went there as an adult for the first time, not to Artsakh, Armenia, in 2018, and I fell in love. I'd only been there when I was three once. <laughs> so a council member, before we go, is there anything uh, you'd like to add to I don't know. I'm trying to think of the big issues we've faced in LA. I
1: I might add public safety to that, Mm -hmm. and that's been an issue that's had some controversy. You know, after you know George Floyd's terrible death, uh, I think uh, every police department in every city, you know, engaged in some introspection about uh, uh, you know what the next step is, and. There was an effort to eliminate law enforcement in Los Angeles, a proposal to cut 95% of the budget, which is actually more than 100% because we'd still have to pay for the pensions of uh, officers that had served. Uh, I was strongly opposed to that from the beginning, honestly, Uh, which doesn't mean that the department doesn't need reform and that there aren't ideas to uh, uh, reduce use of force and... You know handle every racial group equally and appropriately but I think we we don't want to leave ourselves uh, vulnerable to the incredible rise in violent crime right so in my district I found a way to focus on the Melrose area which for a while was a hotbed of, of robberies especially you know, we had video that was shown all over the country of people being robbed at outdoor dining So we really focused resources, worked and brainstormed with the LAPD and other departments and came up with an approach that worked. And actually, we've had no robberies in Melrose, the Melrose area for two weeks, which is probably the first time that's happened in anyone's memory, which has really been effective. Uh, So I think we want to combine reforms that... uh, reduce any remaining problems that exist in the department but at the same time we we want to be their partners and protect public safety and the other thing we've been working on with LAPD has been eliminating ghost guns which uh, are guns that bypass the background check system Mm -hmm. uh, don't have any identifying serial numbers so they can be used in crime and not be an asset to law enforcement to find the perpetrators all because they're sent in pieces so they're mailed in a kit if you can assemble a gun which is actually pretty simple to do with instructions then even if you're legally not allowed to have one you can have one that's kind of frightening and so the last four years the number of them in la has gone up 400 percent we're now at uh, a point where uh, about a third of all guns used in crimes and recovered by LAPD are these ghost guns. Uh, so far they've been used in, uh, last I checked, I think 24 or 25 homicides in L.A. this year. Um, and every year the problem is growing. So I authored uh, with Paul Krikorian, who I've worked with on on gun violence measures for many decades, um, legislation to, to ban the sale and possession and transfer of these guns and get a handle on, on that
0: public safety threat as well. It's a balancing act. You know, you can't just take all funding away from law enforcement and then complain that uh, you don't feel safe and that you see these crimes happening, which lately has it's, it's been a, a surge in, throughout all of LA County. I would be uh, remiss if I didn't <laughs> ask you because, I, again, I I don't know the vote, but I, I know that listeners are going to want to know, do you recognize the independent of Artsakh as a council member? Oh, of course. Okay.
1: And I, I believe that that's true of every member of our city council. Um, I think we've been unanimously in, in support and trying to uh, defend them in any way that we can help as a as a city i mean we're distant from the conflict but we're one of the you know major cities in the world where we've been voted by some magazines as the most watched city in the world yep. so when we take an action legislatively often it's replicated throughout the county throughout the state sometimes Absolutely. throughout the country and even beyond uh, so hopefully
0: our our strong support will resonate beyond our borders it is it's i watch the reaction of the azerbaijan government and their talking heads and their sort of you know pr and all of that and uh, i see their reaction when things come out of la as well as west hollywood i was um, i got the city of west hollywood uh, to recognize uh, artsakh formally with sepi shine my was a friend of mine Seppi sponsored it and uh, uh, Mayor Horvath co-sponsored it, and it passed earlier this year, so... In and, a small... and I don't know if you know, I
1: was on the West Hollywood City Council also for 12 years. Of course you were. And I kind of started that approach. We, we made some landmark changes on smoking regulations, for instance. And uh, we did them um, jointly timed with L.A. at my instigation and some other cities so that it would be a region, regional ban and that really helped state legislation pass, and it's really gone worldwide since then. West Hollywood has
0: been at the cutting edge, for lack of a better term, a leading in, uh, city in so many ways from plastic ban to not selling fur anymore to. I was going to say a lot of animal issues, yeah. which I helped really start yes. as the first
1: animal cruelty focused council yes. member there. Um, we did a lot of gun, gun violence and gun control measures Yes. Um, where we were, the, we were the first and L.A. followed. Um,
0: you were a council member in 2003 for West Hollywood, were you not? No, I was
1: already gone.
0: You were gone. Okay. I was already in the state legislature. But okay. In
1: 1989, I passed the first assault weapons ban in a city that hadn't had a massacre first right just because it made sense you didn't right. need assault weapons right. on the street yes and that helped other cities that were similarly situated pass bans and help state law pass and Dianne Feinstein's
0: federal legislation yes you definitely have a strong connection with the city of West Hollywood and the LGBTQ community and Armenian community uh, council member thank you those listening can go to Correts uh, for LA, that's coretz, dot com uh, to find out about your, your uh, objectives, your initiatives to be City of Los Angeles's controller and to get more information and contribute and volunteer and to be a part of it. Thank you so much. Hey, thank you so much. I really for appreciate me. it. That was my interview with Councilmember Paul Coretz, who is also a candidate for LA City controller for next year being 2022 election Uh, i interviewed councilmember Koretz for my documentary feature film motherland which will come out next year and i wanted to share part of that interview with you because uh councilmember Koretz has been uh, such a champion of very progressive causes uh, on on many fronts for the longest time and uh I've definitely been a fan and I'm very grateful for this interview and I hope to chat with you again soon, uh, council member or perhaps at the time it would be uh, LA City Controller.
2: I'm Patty Smith, and you're listening to Fiercely Independent Pacifica Radio, KPFK 90.7 FM. People have the power.
0: Blunt Post with Vic. Dr. Irina Raplanyan is a political scientist, climate negotiator, and a published author. Dr. Raplanyan holds bachelor's degree from the University of Malta and a doctorate degree in political science from the University of Cambridge. Dr. Raplanyan served as deputy minister of environment for the Republic of Armenia between 2018 and 2020. Currently, she acts as a senior advisor on climate change to the World Bank Group, as an, as an international expert on climate change to the FAO. She also teaches at the American University of Armenia. Dr. Raplanyan has worked in a number of international organizations and think tanks around the world to include UNDP, Georgetown University, and Eurasia Foundation. In 2015, she was awarded as one of the top social venture entrepreneurs by the Global Food Fund Leadership Program in Washington, D.C. Dr. Haplanyan has a number of academic and media publications, among which the most recent is a book titled Post-Soviet Armenia, The New National Elite and The New National Narrative. National Elite and the New National Narrative. Irina, uh, this is um, sort of a, it's an important thing to sort of um, really establish because so many people don't know or have never heard of Artsakh or or by its Soviet name, which is uh, Nagorno-Karabakh. For those that have never heard about it or not much, what is Artsakh? Where is Artsakh?
2: Thank you. Um, A very important question, I guess, because indeed I would certainly agree with you that Not much is heard about Artsakh, specifically uh, with its Armenian name. It's better known as Nagorno-Karabakh, and to the world it is known mostly because of the conflict that um, erupted in 1980s, at the end of 1980s, at the time of the collapse of the Soviet Union. Now, it's important to know and how to introduce to the international public uh, and the audience the, the, the situation in Nagorno-Karabakh, what had transpired. I think it's important to do, um, even if small, but a step back into history so that a context is well articulated and clear uh, to the world as to what had transpired. Um, at the, I will go back not that far, mostly in the Soviet period. So when the Soviet Union was created, there were different administrative borders uh, within the Union republics, uh, such as um, autonomous oblasts, oblasts, and others. Now what had transpired and I think it's a very important moment in history uh, in the early 1920s because it was uh, heavily Armenian populated at the time of the creation of the Soviet Union. uh, The last census that was conducted uh, was uh, 1923. 94% of Artsakh's population, Nagorno-Karabakh's population, uh, was Armenian. So it was heavily Armenian populated uh, region. Uh, that was initially, uh, in 1923, assigned to uh, the Soviet Socialist Republic of Armenia. Uh, It was assigned by a decision of a so-called Caucasus Bureau. It was an administrative uh, decision-making body within the South Caucasus at the time. But within days, the decision was unilaterally reversed by Stalin. Uh, Most of the historians explain this uh, reversal of the decision that was made by the then um, administrative authority in the South Caucasus. Most of the historians explain this as an, an attempt to appease to Ataturk. At the time, exactly in 1923, the creation of the Turkish Republic after the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. Stalin uh, and Soviet authorities were entertaining the idea of bringing uh, the newly minted Turkish Republic into the proletariat realm. And actually, uh, Atatürk uh, did entertain this idea at least um, very vocally uh, to the population in um, to the communist population of the world, I- if you will. Um, it still remains unclear whether that was ever on the agenda of the Turkish Republic at the time, but certainly it served to th- uh, the purpose uh, that was initially set, and that is, um, you know, giving Nakhichevan Republic to Azerbaijan, which is, again, was at the time of the creation of the Soviet Union, 70%, more than 70% populated by Armenians. So Armenians right. were ethnically cleansed. From Nahichevan, which is was at the time of the Soviet Union uh, an autonomous uh, oblast within Azerbaijan as well. And what is important to know is that unfortunately Nagorno-Karabakh, or Artsakh as Armenians call it, became prey of these big power games very, very early on. And Armenians throughout the Soviet era attempted to uh, redress this injustice in the 1940s. So during the Stalin period, it was virtually impossible to bring this issue to the political agenda of the central authorities of the Soviet Union. And uh, Stalin um, kind of put a taboo on this topic. So uh, literally at the end of the Second World War, um, sometime around 1947, Armenians felt emboldened to bring this issue to the agenda. It was shut down immediately. In the 1950s, 1960s, actually, twice, the uh, Armenians of Stepanakert, Nagorno Karabakh brought this political uh, issue to the central authorities' agenda, stating that we want to re- reunify back with the Armenian Soviet Socialist Republic. Right. Um, it was struck down again. In the 70s and uh, in 1980s, when Gorbachev came to power and they started the period of glasnost and perestroika, Armenians again felt emboldened that, well, now there's transparency. We can make ourselves heard. And they again brought this um, forward to the political agenda of central authorities, requesting reunification back with Armenia, which again was shut down, but this time around in a very, I would call it criminal way. Uh, because um, what happened is uh, the, f- the first trigger was, unfortunately, the pogroms in Sumgait and Baku that led to uh, morbid and killings of Armenians in those two Azerbaijani cities, uh, women, children, elderly. Um, and that led to massive uh, flow of refugees from Azerbaijan, Armenian refugees from Azerbaijan, Um, My grandmother, many of my relatives uh, lived in uh, Baku in other parts of uh, Azerbaijan, for example the Dashkesan region, Khanla region, uh, they all had to flee because of the tensions that were rising. And obviously the same occurred in Armenia, Azerbaijanis were leaving uh, parts of the Armenia where they had settled during the Soviet Union because Soviet authorities, central authorities for decades had uh, certain policies of moving different ethnic groups. Um, And then what had transpired, unfortunately, uh, Russian authorities together, well, at the time still Soviet authorities together with uh, uh, authorities in Baku organized a so-called operation ring, or in Russian, OPERACIYA KALSO, which was, um, I would say, to be politically correct and historically uh, accurate, was essentially an attempt at ethnic cleansing of Armenians uh, from certain parts of uh, Artsakh, and they succeeded. Um, Basically, it was a punishment of central authorities to Armenians in making themselves heard and wanting to be uh, reunited with Armenia. And then what had transpired is unfortunately uh, military clashes. Uh, So after the Operation Ring, the situation in Artsakh and around Artsakh became more volatile and we started seeing more and more clashes, and the people of Artsakh began to organize in uh, small military groups to defend themselves, because they already saw what had transpired in Shaomian region with ethnic cleansing of Armenians from there, and they started defending their homes. And that was the beginning of uh, military confrontation, and then later a full-scale scale war, which lasted 19. 94. now um, in 1994 it was azerbaijani authorities who requested uh, russia to mediate uh, a ceasefire and that's what happened in bishkek in 1994. Uh, four parties uh, came to the negotiating table and signed the uh, uh, the ceasefire agreement Uh, that was azerbaijan armenia Nagorno-Karabakh and Russia, mm-hmm. who was mediating the whole process. Um, so for 30 years, Armenia, uh, uh, Armenians of Nagorno-Karabakh uh, basically held the territories around Nagorno-Karabakh proper. They had referendum, they had government, they had territory, they had uh, full. Uh, all of the uh, elements that would qualify an entity to be recognized before the international law as a sovereign state. Uh, For 30 years, for three decades, uh, OSC Mintz Group, which was charged with the mediation mandate of the conflict, called all of the parties to the conflict to uh, mediate and resolve the conflict by peaceful means. Uh, And one of the major uh, factors that was incorporated in every aspect of mediation of the OSCE men's group was commitment to non-use of force mm-hmm. to which Armenia had fully committed, uh, to which uh, Nagorno-Karabakh had fully committed, and uh, to which Azerbaijan did not commit, as we saw what had transpired in uh, 2020 in fall.
0: Thank you for that. That was uh, incredibly insightful, detailed, and uh, thorough. Well, you covered the region very well. You covered the context and what led to and the reasons for this attack. Uh, Now let's talk about sort of like the deafening silence of the greater international community. Of course, as you mentioned, we had been uh, grappling with COVID, but nonetheless, uh, there was really a deafening silence coming from many international bodies and agencies that are meant to address things like this yes and uh, sort of so-called ally countries as well sort of talk about that
2: sure well as i mentioned unfortunately the um, world was distracted because of pandemic fighting pandemic um, the us was in election but we also need to understand that there are uh, a range of other factors. First of all, uh, the objective factor is uh, the world is not very familiar uh, with uh, post-Soviet conflicts in general and with the um, Gwynne-Karbach conflict in particular. Uh, not familiar because it is tucked away. But also because um, it is kind of still looked at as um, roughly saying the backyard of Russia, this part of the world. Uh, despite, you know, um, Georgia engaging with um, accession negotiations with the EU, uh, making statements about uh, their intent to uh, be considered for NATO membership, et cetera, et cetera, the world, generally speaking, is still. Uh, feels that this geopolitical region is kind of out of the the reach and hence the objective reality that not much is known uh, about the conflict. Now what is important to understand in this context of general awareness about the conflict and the region is that uh, very clearly understanding that uh, Aliyev doesn't fit into although claiming a democratic understanding of a state, you know, his country and his regime, uh, uh, to be more specific, engage in active propaganda, uh, whether of whitewashing Aliyev's domestic and international crimes, uh, or um, also whitewashing the, what, had, what had been going on in the conflict for 30 years so it's it's a standard tactic of any dictatorship where you warp the truth or you simply falsify information and Azerbaijan for years has been engaged in rewriting history um, from claiming ancestral lands of non-existing Azerbaijan to claiming um, cultural and uh, historic figures that were for example Iranian claiming that those are um, Azerbaijan as a state did not exist until uh, 1918. Uh, And the name of the state is actually borrowed from Iran, from Persia. the, the state of Azerbaijan existed within the current borders and still exists within the current borders of Iran, namely the northwestern part of Iran is called, northwestern part of Iran is called Azerbaijan. Right. So um, I think what is important to understand here is also this context that uh, Aliyev's regime engaged in this active propaganda of what they wanted to project to the world in an attempt to whitewash domestic and international crimes. Now. Uh, I'm referring to domestic crimes because a lot of organizations, international organizations, for years have been documenting uh, the the regime in Azerbaijan, imprisoning political uh, opposition, imprisoning journalists, uh, and that was always coupled with torture or uh, assassination. Aliyev had systematically engaged in hunting down uh, and killing his critiques outside of Azerbaijan. Um, the famous case of Alexander Lapshin, the Israeli-Russian blogger who traveled to Nagorno-Karabakh and was blacklisted uh, by Aliyev uh, uh, by Aliyev's regime, uh, and then uh, was literally captured in, Mos- uh, in Minsk by Belarusian authorities and against. Uh, the urgent, uh, the urgent requests of Israel and uh, Russian governments, because he's both national of Russian Federation and Israel, uh, Alexander Lapshin was extradited to Azerbaijan, tried in a ridiculous mock trial, something that we are systematically seeing now uh, perpetrated against uh, Armenian POWs and detainees. Uh, tried, and then uh, attempted, uh, uh, the Azerbaijani authorities attempted to murder him. And just in time, Israeli authorities succeeded in uh, returning him back home. Very shortly after, Mr. Lopshin applied to the European Court of Human Rights, and the court lasted for a few years, and just this year in, in May, the ECHR, European Court of Human Rights, uh, issued a verdict uh, stating that Azerbaijan is at fault of a torture and attempted murder of uh, Alexander Labshin. So I think when we talk about the qualities of this regime, we have to be very clear that on the one hand, it is specifically and ethnically motivated against Armenians, but the institutional, uh, the institutional aspects and instrumentary is designed to torture and murder anybody who counters Aliyev and his inner circle whether you're Israeli, whether you are Azeri, or whether you are Armenian. So this is an important context to understand. And Aliyev is well-educated. He started studied in Moscow. He's very well-versed in, uh, in Russian and English. He understands who he really is. This is clear. That's why he engages and spends millions of dollars every year in whitewashing who he is, who his family is, what regime he's operating. And I think what is very important also to stress is the recent Pandora Papers also revealed that he's well aware that his time in Azerbaijan is not eternal.
0: That's right. <sighs> thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> that was amazing. That was my interview with Dr. Irina Kaplanyan, who is an expert uh, in climate change as well as South Caucasus and what is happening in Artsakh and Armenia right now. Uh, Dr. Raplanyan, thank you very much for your time and for being on the show. And uh, I hope to chat with you again soon. Before we go, I'd like to thank my producer, Ricky Herrera, without whom this show would not be possible, and KPFK, the station that brings you unfiltered and commercial-free news, opinion, and hopefully some inspiration. Thank you for joining me today on The Blunt Post with Vic. Tune in next Monday at 6 a.m. for another episode. For more information, please visit thebluntpost.com. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at VicJirami at V-I-C-G-E-R-A-M-I. Thank you. The Blunt Post with Vic.